Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Well, Thanksgiving is coming up, and ever since my dad died a few years ago, Thanksgiving has been a mixed bag. Uh, On the one hand, it's great to gather around the family table. On the other hand, it's impossible to ignore who is missing from that table. There's an empty chair where my dad should be, and that is painful. And we could call this empty chair syndrome because I think we all know what this feels like. We all have experienced this from time to time. It doesn't have to be caused by the death of a loved one, though often it is that. It could be a friend who moved away. It could be an unwanted breakup. We go regardless through life with a sense that there's an empty chair begging to be filled. Well, this is my experience, friends, with the book of Judges. The whole time I'm reading Judges, the whole time I'm studying Judges, it feels like something is off. It feels like someone, frankly, is missing. You see, Judges, if you've never read it, is a tough read. It's a tough read. And not because it's hard to understand. It's a tough read because it's perfectly easy to understand. If I'm honest, studying it even this week created a constant pit in my stomach. You can ask my wife, it even impacted my mood. The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright just says it plain. He says, the book of Judges is a depressing read. But why is it? Well, simply put, with a few exceptions, Israel behaves atrociously before the watching world. If they're called to be a light in the world, in Judges we see darkness. So imagine if you could being hand-selected by the best coach in the world to play in the World Cup. And because this is the best coach in the world, you experience and have access to the best training in the world, with the best playbook in the world. And then imagine after decades of training... With this new coach and this new team, it's finally, finally, finally time to step into the world stage and to show the watching world and to showcase this brilliant coaching that you've received. And your team steps on the field and they start fighting with each other. And even more surprisingly, they start fighting with the coach. And then to shock everybody, they take off their jerseys and they put on the jerseys of the opposing team. That is judges. And the whole world is watching and they're scratching their head. The light of the world is just flinging darkness around all over the place in this book. One scholar of Judges, a faithful scholar, Daniel Block, summarizes Judges with one word. Failure. And he does so in two categories. The failure of Israel's people. And the failure, sadly, of Israel's leaders. So first, every major section in Judges highlights in some way the failures of God's people to be a light to the nations. 
And this failure is holistically. Often at hope, we often say that all of life is to be lived with our heads, with our hearts, and with our hands. That's a holistic way to live before God. Well, we see in Judges holistic failure. Failure with their hands. And so we see, I'm just going to put some scripture on the screen. They failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. And then chapter 5, Gilead. This is after Deborah sort of calls everybody together into action. But we see this. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, these are tribes of Israel. Why did he stay with the ships? I love this line. Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. And so they failed miserably with their hands. We also see that they failed with their heads. Look at this in chapter 2, verse 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. It's a failure of discipleship. And then we see failure with their hearts. This and versions of this are repeated throughout this ancient book. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. And this plays out over and over and over again. So that by the end of the book, we have a man and his name is Micah, who basically creates his own private religion and has his own personal priest. All of this failure, in a way, intensifies and builds. As the, and the book, in a way, gets darker and darker and darker as you read it. Scholars like to describe Judges as a downward spiral. It goes in cycles. God's people are unfaithful. They cry out. God hears, raises a judge. And then it happens all over again. And then it happens all over again. And then it happens all over again. It's this downward spiral. And it doesn't just go in a spiral and staying at the same place. It goes further and further down. It's like the Harry Potter series. You know, each like the evil in book one is nowhere touches. and It feels tame compared to the evil we see in book seven. The same as with judges. Failure actually, I think, is too tame of a word by the time we hit the final chapters. And thankfully, the author of Judges uses a stronger word. Evil. This refrain, the descendants of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I see it in chapter 2, verse 11. I see it in chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 6. Chapter 13, verse 1. It's used actually seven times in this book. And y'all know what seven means in the Bible, right? It means complete. Their behavior is not kind of evil. It's Full on, number seven, evil. And we see this in chapter 19 of Judges where we read about the violent rape and murder of an unnamed woman. At the hands of God's people. If the not-profit organization, she has a name, seeks to recognize the dignity of women who are victims of sexual violence. Then we start to understand why the author of Judges does not give the name of this woman. The author of Judges is inviting you to see just how dehumanizing this behavior is. And as if this dehumanization wasn't enough, her so-called husband dismembers her. I'm not making this up. 
and then nails her violated body to the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, not making this up. Which triggers a civil war and then more violence against women. So scholar Phyllis Tribal says, what happens to the one unnamed woman essentially happens to the whole of Israel. It's ugly. And the book ends. And then the book ends. But how does the book end? So it doesn't tie things together. It doesn't spin it in any possible way. It actually just says, if you go to your Bibles and you look, the very last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the author of this book of Judges is spotlighting the failure of Israel's people. But that's not it. This book is called Judges, isn't it? This book is called Judges because time and time again, when God's people are in trouble and they cry out, God raises up a judge. A better translation, I think, of judge would be rescuer or even savior. And that's what they do. They save or they rescue Israel from themselves. And from their enemies. And they do from time to time. But most of the time, sadly, they bring Israel down. Into that spiral. You would expect these saviors to rise above the evil of God's own society. But sadly, this isn't the case. Yes, somehow and mysteriously, God uses these flawed leaders. So just pay attention to the spirit. In judges, when a judge receives the spirit, it's not so much a divine stamp of approval as it is a divine overriding of this flawed person. And yes, there are exceptions to the leadership failures in Israel. And according to my reading, they're all women. Deborah is the greatest example. She's called mother of Israel. She is a prophet. Speaking the very words of God to a culture who would not listen. In a generation of civil war, she unites Israel. Except for the tribes we just read about, who stayed home. In a generation of fools, she speaks wise words under her tree. In a nation that's supposed to be a light, but is darkness, Deborah shines bright. And this bright exception is sadly in contrast to the dark norm. There are 12 judges, and with the exception of a few, including Deborah, these rescuers, they don't raise Israel up, but they drag Israel down. So Gideon, away, gets off to a sketchy start when he starts to doubt God's call. Compare his call from God, for instance, to Isaiah's call from God. And he doubts it. And then he tests God's clear voice. Not once, but twice with his wool fleece. And yes, he is used by God and he shows remarkable faith in God. And that's where most of the Sunday school lessons land in the life of Gideon. But we don't spend as much time in the Sunday school with what happens after, which is that he spirals down. He looks no different than your average Canaanite tyrant by the book's end. And he even sets up worship. And it seems like the worship is not to Yahweh, but to himself. 
And out of one mouth, he says, oh, there is no God but Yahweh. But then out of the other mouth, he names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. He says, there is no king but Israel, no king but Yahweh. But he names his child, my father is king. Jephthah is not raised up by God at all. If you carefully read the text, you see that he's just elected up. And he's a false rescuer, therefore, who in the end sacrifices his vulnerable daughter for his own agenda. And this, of course, is the opposite of Jesus, the true Savior who sacrifices himself for the sake of others. And then Samson, the life of Samson, I think, could be a Netflix series and no one would know it's from the Bible. They'd be shocked. He's set apart at birth, which is marked by what is called a Nazarite vow. Those who volunteer this vow, they don't drink wine. Samson does. They don't cut their hair. Samson gets a haircut. They don't touch dead things. Samson touches a lot of dead things. He's therefore, I think, a living icon of Israel in those days. Called to be set apart from God, but just like the culture around them. No different. I mean, honestly, reading Judges is kind of like listening to an ancient podcast about the rise and the fall of God's ancient church. You can certainly point out good things, and there are bright exceptions, mostly women. Like Deborah and JL, we'll get into her. But by the time you're done listening to this ancient podcast, all you see and literally all you feel is destruction and defeat and disillusionment with God's people and God's leaders. And I think that's the point. When you read Judges, the book is supposed to create in you a longing for somebody to come and make things right. Empty chair syndrome. The whole time you're reading this book, you ought to be feeling like you're sitting at the table and somebody is missing. And I think Judges actually invites this kind of reading. Mary J. Evans says this book records history in a way that helps readers, faithful readers, quote, think, assess, analyze, and learn. In other words, God honors your intelligence with this book. He tells this story in a way that causes you to wrestle and causes you to engage and that even engages your emotions. Sometimes the Bible, if you didn't know this, describes bad behavior. And sometimes the Bible describes righteous behavior. How do you know the difference? Exactly. Exactly. That's hard work. But God entrust this and believes that we are up to this task. And so when I read Judges, I get two massive hints. The Judges is telling this story to create empty chair syndrome. The first hint is the sevenfold refrain. Israel did whatever they wanted to. It's a refrain. That means the author of Judges is basically giving you a little bit of a hint saying, okay, as you read this, get, just keep this in mind. They're living without reference to Yahweh. They did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. 
And then I see the first and the last line. I was a literature major, so I was trained to look at the first and the last line of everything. And when you look at the first line, it says, after the death of Yeshua, Joshua. And what is the last line? Do you remember? In those days, Israel had no king. Judges begins with the death of Joshua, which means God saves. And it ends with, in those days, there was no king in Israel. So this, for me, creates a Jesus-shaped hole in the book of Judges and everything that happens between those two lives. So maybe we should call it empty throne syndrome. So while it is depressing, I think it actually offers us two surprising gifts. And that's what I want to talk about the rest of our time. The first gift that judges can give us is what I'll call the gift of holy realism. In three ways. We can be realistic because this is in our story about our finitude. We are finite creatures. And that is not a bad thing. Like we pretend it is. As Kelly Capich points out, we all have belly buttons. <laughs> Whether we deny it or not. Which means that we would not be alive if it were not for our mother's umbilical cord. Think about that. That means we are by nature dependent creatures. We are designed actually to be dependent. And not just on humans, but ultimately on the Lord. And I believe that Judges reminds us of this time and time again. If Judges is meant to create an empty throne syndrome, it is to me a reminder that I am in a way meant to be dependent on the king of the universe. And that is not a bad thing. That is how I am made. I am a dependent human. And you are too. Amen. We are creatures meant to live in communion with God. And so we can be realistic about our finitude. We can be realistic about our dependencies. We don't have to hide them. We can talk about our deep need for God. We can talk about, therefore, our deep need for others. We can talk about our deep need for godly leaders. That's okay. It's okay to say we are needy and that we are dependent. I think this book also helps us see that we can be realistic about our failures. In many ways, I think Judges is an invitation to confession. Daniel Block actually calls it a mirror. This book functions in many ways as a mirror, especially to church leadership. And not just shallow confession, but deep confession. See, the way that Judges frames failure in both the people and the leaders is very helpful to me. It's framed in terms of two things, idolatry and spiritual adultery. Which, if you think about it, is ultimately the same thing. What is idolatry? Idolatry is whenever you place your ultimate trust, when you give your heart to something that is not God, even if it's a good thing. And isn't that essentially like cheating on God? It's an unfaithfulness of the heart. It's an accusation even against God's sin is. 
And when you think of sin in that way, it actually takes you to the depths of our heart condition, doesn't it? It helps to say that this sin, X, is actually deeply rooted in idolatry. In spiritual unfaithfulness. That is a helpful way, I think, to present our failures before God and others. I'm so challenged by this comment from Christopher Wright. He says, Baal is claimed to be, this is the God of Canaan. Baal is claimed to be the God of rain, fertility of the land and your crops, of sex and procreation, of business, and of the land itself. To be frank, Baal is the God of everything that seems to matter. As for Yahweh, he's a pretty competent God to have in battle, as their history shows. And they will not abandon him altogether, they think. But for everyday practical life in the real world of living in this land, you really need Baal, or so it seems. That's such a challenging quote. Because as Christians, as Christ followers, we can go to God when life falls apart. He's our mighty warrior when we need him to be. But when it comes to the practical, everyday life in the real world, we think that the gods of the secular age and other gods are more competent. We depend on so many other things, don't we? Well, I think Judges, if we allow it, invites deep confession to confess our failures to one another and to the Lord in this way. In a way that gets to the root. Lord, I'm not trusting you in this way. Because I'm actually trusting in my job performance. I'm not trusting you in this way because I'm actually trusting in this relationship to fill me. I'm not trusting you in this way because I'm actually trusting in my track record or, or my perception before others. And so on. And that is a helpful way to understand our failures. I also think that this book can help us be realistic about others' failures. See, Judges doesn't just give us the gift of realism about our own failures, but also the failures of others. Yes, we are sinners, but we are also sinned against. Amen? We've been sinned against. And I think Judges, I actually believe, is a resource for victims. Because it's frankly a clear-eyed catalog of spiritual, sexual, political, and even physical abuse. And so think about this. God doesn't edit this out. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't spin it. He records it in His holy, eternal Word. Which means the true God sees it, and He calls it evil. I typed the word evil in my scripture search bar as I was studying for this sermon, and a lot of evil popped up. I counted 14 times. And you might think that that evil is directed towards Israel's Canaanite neighbors. No, no, no. The evil is described as God's own. Israel. Light of the world. I think this can be a gift. This holy realism can be a gift to anyone who feels unseen as a victim. And so Judges offers us, I think, a strange gift of holy realism. Realism by itself, it needs to be qualified, because realism by itself 
could lead us to despair. If we only name the broken facts of this world and leave it there, then that could sink us. What we need is a qualified realism, a holy realism, which is what Judges offers because God sees the brokenness and in Judges vows to do something about it. And that brings us to our second gift. What I would call the gift of holy rest. See, Judges is not just honest. Judges is hopeful. Judges has a Jesus-shaped hole in it. Judges is designed, I think, to create a restlessness in our soul. And that rest can only be found in the true and perfect judge or savior or rescuer. Jesus, Yahweh, in the flesh, Yeshua, God saves. Judges will not let you settle with false saviors. Amen? And so rest, rest, rest in the coming king. So if if Judges creates a Jesus-shaped hole in our hearts, that hole begins to fill in the very next book, Book of Ruth. How so? Well, come next week and find out. I'll give you a hint. Ruth hints at the coming of a king named David. Who will be shaped not like the culture around him, but shaped in many ways like God. And even King David is flawed. Which we'll read about in the coming weeks. But King David points us to Jesus, the son of David. Who is God in flesh. And so rest in the coming king. I also want to encourage you to rest in the good king. I think Judges proclaims a profound truth to all who have trouble trusting authority. Jesus alone. And you say, wait, no, they're anti-authoritarian. No, they're not. They're just pro-good authority. And they've seen bad authority time and time again. They're happy to bend their knee to good authority and Jesus is best. Rest in the good king, Jesus. And then rest in the victorious king. All of the temporary and complicated victories in Judges, which there are many. There are temporary and complicated victories in Judges are just whispers of the victorious battle that Jesus fights for us on the cross. The British pastor, theologian, Andrew Wilson, has this brilliant chapter in his brilliant book that I recommend you read called The God of All Things. His observation in Judges is that God seems to time and time again win battles with tools. Not weapons. So Shamgar defeats his enemies with a cattle prod. An unnamed woman defeats Abimelech, a tyrant, with a milling stone. Gideon and his soldiers defeat the enemy with jars and trumpets and torches. They don't have weapons at all. They don't even have swords.
And the author of Hebrews, I should say, highlights the faith of so many of these judges. Even as the author of Judges highlights so much of their flaws. Which is to say that God is the victor. And it's their mustard seed faith that brings the victory. Which takes us to Jael. Jael defeats General Sisera with what? Camping gear. A mallet and a tent peg. According to Andrew Wilson, all of this points to three things. Number one, Israel is not the victor. God is. It sort of highlights the reality that if, if any victory is going to happen, it has to be through the Lord. Because goodness, they're using jars. And they're intentionally reducing the number of soldiers down to 300 in the case of Gideon. Number two, God prefers tools to weapons in this world. He designed the world to be cultivated, not destroyed, didn't he? He created Eden. He said, expand the borders and cultivate and bring life out of it. Weapons do not bring life out of the world. Weapons bring death. And so we see even in this a hint that tool that God prefers tools to weapons. And it points to a future day when swords will be bent into plowshares, as Isaiah promises. When the actual weapon gets turned into an actual gardening tool. And ultimately, he points out to a strange theme in Judges where the heads of enemies get crushed with these tools. J.L. crushes the head of General Sisera with camping tools. Again, not making this up. Well, this is an important detail. It points backwards and forwards to God's story. Backwards to the promise in Genesis. If you were with us, you know this. Genesis 3.15, where God promises that the head of the serpent would what? Be crushed. By an offspring of Mary. And J.L. gives us hints of this. But only Jesus provides it. See, this also points us forward in time when Israel does have a king. When Israel has a king that does right in God's eyes, not what they want to do in God's eyes, and who actually rescues God's people, and he saves us. But how does he save us, this king, this true king, this true son of David, Jesus? He saves us on a cross, not with weapons. He redeems, he rescues, he is the judge of all judge, not with weapons, but with what? With the very tools that he grew up. Handling wood and nails. As Andrew Wilson points out, Jesus doesn't use weapons against the mighty Roman Empire and Satan's false empire. No, Jesus carries the carpentry tools that he knew well, nails and wood, and by dying, he crushes the head of the enemy in our place. He is the victorious king. So let me just close with a few questions. Do you have Empty throne syndrome in your life today. Could it be that all of your life is being lived without a king? Without a person? Are you exhausted with doing what is right in your own eyes? Are you just done with that game? Well, allow judges to introduce you to Jesus. 
He alone fills the vacuum in your soul. He alone gives you victory to your battles and gives you rest. I want to ask you this too. Are you cynical perhaps about church? Well, allow judges to give you a holy realism about God's people. Judges is a sordid tale. And I believe it's a gift to those who have legitimate questions about the church. And perhaps the most offensive thing about judges is the fact that God keeps his promise to Israel through it all. The gospel is offensive. You know that, right? It defends our pride. It defends our sense of what is right and wrong in that sense. Because if we were God, what do we do? We would just scrap the whole thing and start over. But God constantly intervenes, constantly, as I said, uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines time and time again. And this highlights how committed God is to his people and how committed, therefore, Jesus is to his bride, despite his bride's failures to love him back. You see, God promised long ago to bless the nations through Israel, specifically through Israel's Messiah, Jesus. So without God's dogged commitment to his broken people that we see here in Judges, we wouldn't meet Jesus. Jesus, who comes from the first tribe we meet in Judges, Judah. Which means the first tribe to fail in being a light to the nations. But Jesus comes to live in our life, to be the light of the world for us. Let me just ask this final question as we close. Do you doubt God's love? And maybe that's what you what you need to hear this morning is that God's commitment to his people far far exceeds your capacity to mess things up. What have you done to mess things up? What have you done that brings dishonor to the Lord and the church? What have you done that flings more darkness than light into the world? Judges acknowledges the pain and the consequences of that, the harm that that does. But don't miss, it also points you to a redeemer. Don't miss it, it also points you to a judge who has been judged in your place. Do you doubt God's love? Allow judges to convince you otherwise. And so, Lord, we come to you in faith. We come to you in mustard seed faith. And we entrust our lives and our stories to you. Because in judges, we see your heart and your character. Your longing to make all things new through, shockingly, your people. But we're grateful that through your people comes the Lord Jesus who lived for us and who died for us and who rescues us in all the ways that we fail. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.